Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Democrat Laura Curran, the first woman elected county executive on Long Island, breaking a glass ceiling and vowing to break with the past. Laura Curran joining us live. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. Entertaining and informative. Thought-provoking conversations that get right to the point. Observers say her future is bright. Here to tell us more about it, Laura Curran. Now here's Laura Curran. Hello, everyone. I'm so happy that you're joining us here on Talk Radio 77 WABC. There is a lot of news going around, and uh, I'm really happy to have in with me in the studio Melissa DeRosa. She's a fan favorite on Cats at Night, uh, former secretary to Governor Cuomo. But I feel like that uh, title for you is getting kind of old because you're a political consultant. You write a column for the Daily Beast. Uh, you're a person in your own right. <laughs> so welcome to the show, Melissa. Thanks, Laura. Great to be here. Uh, by the way, everyone listening, you can also, if you're listening on a regular radio, that's great. But you can also go to wabcradio.com and you can download the 77 WABC mobile app. Put us in your pocket. And so after I speak with Melissa, Melissa's going to hang out with me for a little while. We're going to talk to George Latimer, who is the Westchester County Executive, who has a very diplomatic way of dealing with Governor Kathy Hochul's housing plan, housing compact when it comes to local control and zoning. Uh, And then we're going to talk about a new vision for Penn Station. And then, listeners, I want to hear from you. The number is 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC. So, Melissa... You have been tweeting and talking on the radio about this Trump versus Alvin Bragg, Manhattan DA. Will he bring charges? Will he indict Trump? Trump seems to be, can we call it overreacting? The tweet with the baseball bat calling him degenerate scum and an anarchist and a devil person, all this stuff. Is this smart of Alan Bragg to bring this about or does it just elevate Donald Trump? You know, I think that this is sort of just a disaster all around. I think that Alvin Bragg, my theory is that Alvin Bragg did not originally intend to bring this case. I think that Alvin Bragg's back was sort of put up against a wall when he chose not to do the other case. Right. And to remind listeners, there was a case that was started by Cy Vance, his predecessor, that he threw out when he got there. Yep. And it's a case that Trish James is actually taking up civilly, and there was a criminal version of the case And he had, it had been leaked out in the press that he had decided that he did not think it was a strong enough case to go forward. And there were a couple of assistant district attorneys, this guy, Mark Pomerantz, who vehemently disagreed with this decision and went public with it. Wrote a book. Wrote a book, which in my view, by the way, is highly unethical. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that's something that you just don't do. If you want to be district attorney, Mark Pomerantz, and you want to call the shots, then put your name on the ballot, get elected, and you do that. Right. What he did, I thought, was totally unethical. But and just event, to remind everyone, this is the case over hush money for Stormy Daniels. So, well, so that this is the other case. So, what I think happened was, I think that Alvin Bragg was getting a lot of heat from the left, who said, "Why are you not doing this other case? You've got your former ADA saying it's a good, solid case. 
why are you not bringing this case? But he had sort of put his feet in cement because he had said that he didn't think it was strong enough. So I think in sort of looking for a light switch to save himself in the dark, he turned back to this Stormy Daniels hush mm. money case. So you think he was pressured? I think that he was pressured. I think he was looking for a way out, but he didn't want to sort of admit that he or or knee jerk on the first case. And yeah. so he was like, I need ah. to do something with Trump. Which, you know, in and of itself, I think is very questionable. Mm -hmm. And I think at best this case is a books and records case. I think that the question of whether or not the hush money that Michael Cohen already went to jail for back in 2018, um, I think that that was a case that was a books and records case. And it's already passed the statute of limitations. It's a two-year statute of limitations. So the way that Alvin Bragg is trying to get around this is to upcharge it to be a federal crime because he's saying that it was actually a misuse of campaign funds because it was paid for privately and he had secreted this hush money to this porn star actress in order to hide it from the voters. And so he's trying to bring this novel sort of claim that this is a combination of books and records and also that this was something that was an illegal campaign contribution, essentially. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, you know, the the problem with that, of course, is that he is basing the case entirely on the credibility of Michael Cohen, who has no credibility, who is a convicted perjurer who spent years in jail and has also spent years sort of rehabilitating himself as being the anti-Trump. So where forever he was a fixer for Trump, he's reinvented himself and tried to become sort of a darling of the left. All of a sudden you're on MSNBC, you're on the talk shows for being disloyal. He wrote a book called Disloyal, and he sort of has made this his brand. It's actually a great read. I have not read it, but I'll take your word for it. It's a very juicy I mean, totally spills the tea. It's great. <laughs> well, so so that's sort of where Michael Cohen has come from. And so last week, for your listeners, the grand jury, um, one of the lawyers that went in for the grand jury said Michael Cohen at the time was bragging that this was his idea, really to the extent that, you know, this money was being used. It was to hide it from Melania, not had nothing to do with the voters. And so then Alvin Bragg, you know, dismisses the the grand jury for two consecutive days. And so everyone was left wondering because people thought there was going to be an indictment last week. Why is the grand jury on standby? Right. And is this and by, by the way, listeners, I'm speaking with Melissa DeRosa. We're talking about um, Bragg v. Trump. <laughs> and my, I was thinking if this if there's no indictment happens, if, if the grand jury doesn't indict and that old cliche about you can indict a ham sandwich if you want to. Won't that be terribly embarrassing for him? I mean, it will show that he's neither a good politician nor a good prosecutor. Well, and and, and I got to think he's probably freaking out, especially if what you say is true. He didn't even want to necessarily do this in the first place, but he was kind of peer pressured into it. That's what it looks like to me. And and again, it's sort of like, are you politicizing the DA's office? Did you really have a slam dunk case? I mean, there's 23 members of the grand jury. You only need a simple majority. This should be a walk in the park. It's New York. Obviously, New Yorkers yeah. don't have warm, fuzzy feelings for the former president. But that being said, I think that New Yorkers also have a little bit of a BS meter. And so if they yeah. smell something and, yeah. they, and they don't think it's right, you know, I'm not sure that they will necessarily go along. So, look, the grand jury is entirely secret. All of this is speculation, because until, you know, Bragg does something official, we won't really know what the charging document says. We won't really know what his plan is. But in this void has left all these questions and conspiracy theories. And I think it's been very bad for Bragg and very bad for the Democrats as we try to prosecute a number of arguments against Trump and other prosecutors who I think are bringing weightier cases against him. And meanwhile, Trump's having a ball. He's raised as of, you know, a couple days ago, $1.5 million off of this. He's getting a lot of press. Here we are talking about him again. So, hey, you know, make my day. 
Well, and, and Trump, you know, he can't help himself, right? So I think that Trump actually had an opportunity where public opinion was going in his direction, where people started to, you know, be very cynical about what Bragg was doing. But then he tweets this photograph of him holding a baseball bat, you know, yeah. with the photo of Alvin Bragg, just goes way over the top. Yeah. All of a sudden is, you know, seemingly dog whistle language inciting violence, very reminiscent of what happened on January 6th. Yes. And so, you know, it's like the boomerang effect. And so I think it was it was bad for Bragg and good for Trump. Now I think it's sort of bad for both of them. And really, it's just terrible for democracy. Right. <laughs> it's like this guy was president of the United States and wants to be president of the United States again. This is a district attorney. How is he making these decisions? It just it's all very messy. And I think sort of feeds into the cynicism around politics, the politicalization of the legal system. It's just, it's all bad. I, yeah. I, I think there are no winners here. Yeah, you're probably right. Although I, I do, I still do think Trump wins. I think he net wins on this, no matter how it shakes out, indicted or not. But I could be wrong. All right, I want to shift gears to talk about more locally here in New York. The governor's budget, we're talking on the 26th. So the governor's budget is due April 1st. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know your former boss is very proud of the fact that he got it on time after, you know, it had been months sometimes to get it on time uh, for years and years and years. So that's so do you think we're going to have an on time budget? Because we have a um, pretty you know strong budget from the governor, the current governor, Kathy Hochul. But the legislature, both houses of the legislature are pu- pushing back on her bail change, the reform to the reform, MTA funding, menthol cigarettes, housing. Uh, there's just a, a whole litany of things. Do you think it's going to be on time? Absolutely not. <laughs> okay. And what do you think is the governor's biggest priority where she would sell all of the other issues that she's concerned about to get this one thing? It's cash bail. It's reforming. As you know, the cash bail system was dramatically overhauled in 2019. There was a first round of trying to fix it in 2020, a second round of trying to fix it last year. And this is sort of the third time's a charm. And Hochul, from what I understand and from what I hear up in Albany, is, you know, she basically believes her governorship is on the line. If she does not get something serious here on bail, she completely botched the LaSalle judgeship nomination. Huge embarrassment. She only won by five points, five and a half points in a state with only 22 percent Republicans running against a MAGA, you know, Donald Trump acolyte, Lee Zeldin. She botched the Western New York storm. So, you know, across the board, I think she had an extended honeymoon phase when she first came in and people were willing to sort of look the other way on the fact that all she was doing was fundraising, that she really wasn't managing the government, um, that she was you know, accused of a lot of pay to play in terms of donor access and such. But now people aren't looking the other way. And I think she knows that right now she's viewed as so incredibly weak that if she does not pull a rabbit out of her hat in this budget, that she's got real problems for the foreseeable future. So it's all about bail. And what you say about bail makes sense because if, I mean, the change that she has put in her budget is giving judges to not be bound by least restrictive for people who come before them. So an easier way of saying that is giving the judges more discretion, which a lot of people agree with. I actually think that's a very, if you're going to change one thing right now, I mean, I think we could look at the discovery stuff as well. That probably needs to be changed. We saw that cover of the New York Post today about how, I mean, this is the post, so, you know, who knows? But they're they're pegging the increase of DWI and of traffic fatalities and all kinds of traffic infractions on the fact that discovery take, this takes, you know, they can't get it, it done in time, so they have to throw out all of these cases. So people can just walk free. I think about half of traffic infractions have been thrown out 
last year? Yeah. No, it's look, it's it's a mess. It's a problem on a lot of levels. And I think that she is, you know, really what she wants, the holy grail is dangerousness, which is every other state in the country that has cash bail system has a provision where judges have discretion around whether or not an individual in their discretion poses a danger to society and so can be held. And she really wants dangerousness. I do not believe she's going to get dangerousness. So the fallback is the least restrictive. And then the question is, does she get broad discretion on least restrictive? So judges have the ability to say, okay, you don't have to be held by the least restrictive standard if you're a violent felon or if you're a petty criminal, petty crime, misdemeanor, you know, a theft, et cetera. So it doesn't necessarily have to be armed robbery. It could be theft. Um, And I am betting that the legislature is not going to give her broad discretion on this. I'm betting the legislature will give on violent crimes only on least restrictive. And then she's going to have to put lipstick on a pig and try to go out and sell it. And, you know, this time around, Sharpton is pushing the leaders I know to get something done on bail. I know this matters to Hakeem Jeffries, who saw him lose four seats this time around. Eric Adams has decided to go around Hochul and develop his own relationships with the Senate and the assembly mm, leaders. I think that he's sort of recognized that she's incredibly weak. And so if he mm. wants to get his agenda done in Albany, he cannot bank on the relationship with the governor. Mm. And so he's reached out and this year in a new sort of spirit of collaboration has formed a, a better working relationship with the Senate and assembly um, leaders. And so there's a different dynamic where I do think there will get something done, but I think it's going to be a least restrictive change only for violent felons and violent criminals. And I think that then they're going to have to parade it as a win. And you're going to need to see the Democrats all unify and say it was a win and try to sell it to the editorial boards, the Republicans, the prosecutors and the judges. And then, you know, we'll see how they react. And let's see how the people feel about it. That's right. Uh, I'm Laura Curran. You're listening to Cut to the Jace. I'm talking to Melissa DeRosa. So you mentioned Judge Hector LaSalle, uh, who is the governor's pick to be chief judge. Mm-hmm. He was uh, really insulted, I think, by the legislators and didn't his nomination wasn't approved. Now we've got seven new people mm-hmm. uh, that the Judicial Commission has suggested. The governor is going to pick someone. Um Anything about this list that's interesting to you? I see we do have one former prosecutor, which is basically the undoing of Judge LaSalle. That's Shirley Troutman. She's got a shot? You know, I think that Troutman will get I, I, my bets on Troutman. I think Troutman or Rowan Wilson. Um, the two of them, you know, Shirley Troutman is African-American from Buffalo, very highly regarded. Hochul actually selected her to put her on the bench you know, originally that's her sole pick that's currently on the Court of Appeals. And Rowan Wilson, who African-American former lawyer from Long Island, um, and they're both very left-leaning. So mm. I think she can be forgiven any anything in her background that could be, you know, a whiff of being a former prosecutor. Okay. Because she sided with the minority against Janet Fiore on the redistricting fight. She was one of the minority members who broke with the majority and and said that the lines should have been allowed to stay. That big fight that the legislature had last year when the Republicans brought the lawsuit and the lines ended up getting thrown out for the redistricting, which, you know, many yes. people attribute to the fact that we lost the congressional seats and that right. it was a big cluster at the end. Oh, it really was. And so I think that the Senate will bless either of those two picks solely on the basis that they were basically siding with the Democratic legislature on that crucial 
crucial argument. So my money is on one of the two of them. And it's funny, I tweeted that the other day. And then shortly after, I saw Brad Hoyleman, who's the chairman for the Judiciary Committee, put out a statement a saying, senator. if either Troutman or Rowan Wilson gets selected, I see an, a glide path to success. So I think that they're telegraphing early that if you want an easy time around, Aye. it gives Hochul an out because she was his pick and her pick originally right, anyway. Right, so she saves face. What's interesting is because those are two current sitting members of the Court of Appeals, it will, when you select one of them, you're going to have to start this process all over again because mm-hmm. you're just taking someone who's already on the bench and making them the chief. So then you've got to have the judicial screening panel go back, pick another seven names, and then the drama starts all over again. So, Melissa, as you're talking, uh, I know that you were governor to the uh, secretary to the governor, which is basically the COO. He's the CEO. You're the CEO, COO, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any kind of like PTSD or nervousness? <laughs> went around budget time <laughs> that's in your in your system now that you it'll take a few years to to get it out because you're it's high stakes all the time and i got to think it's 16 17 hour days for the last couple of weeks yep i know absolutely with the horse trading and everything else that goes on <laughs> no and you know i'm thinking of all the staffers that are up there burning the midnight oil i am actually tomorrow night having dinner with Chantel smith who used to be the counsel to andrea stewart cousins till last year and we said we're going to go out to dinner on march 26th and toast the fact that we are at dinner on March 26th. Right. So, you know, trying to find the bright lights and not being there. But yes, it's definitely PTSD when you're watching sort of the tea leaves and you're hearing the rumors that they shut down over the weekend. I heard a rumor that, you know, Hochul was demanding movement on criminal justice and the legislature sort of balked. And so they didn't get anything done for 24 hours. And it's like, well, it has to blow up in order to get put back together. And so certainly there's triggering aspects to this for for me and for others who have gone through the process. So we have about one minute left. But having been there and having had success in the process with on time budgets and all of that, uh, I don't know if Governor Hochul wants to hear advice because advice is very annoying and it's actually kind of insulting when you get unwanted advice. <laughs> but if you could give her one piece of advice that would help her in this time, what would it be? Do not make a threat you're not willing to see through. Mm. That was the biggest mistake she made on LaSalle was that she went out there, she threw her weight around, she talked a big game about bringing a lawsuit And then she never pulled through. And in Albany, you are only as good as your word. And when people know they can push you around, they're going to push you around. So don't go out and talk about a late budget and draw lines in the sand unless you're actually willing to see it through. And when you're staring down, potentially shutting down the government or if like like 30 seconds, what are the stakes of, of, of not having a budget on time? If the, the the simplest way to put it is if the budget is not done by April 1st and there's no extender, the government shuts down. So that means hmm. that CSEA, PEF, which are the municipal workers that run all of the state agencies, the unions. unions, all of their employees go home without pay. And so that is the, that's the biggest thing. You know, the, the other parts of it are you lose confidence in the government's ability to function. The rating agencies could downgrade the, the government's finances. Oh. And so there's other practical implications and I think sort of symbolic implications. But the biggest one is the government shuts down. Well, that's not a good look for anybody. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Melissa DeRosa. She's going to stick around after the break. We're going to talk to Westchester County Executive George Latimer, who has a very diplomatic but firm way of talking of giving the governor advice when it comes to housing and local control, not local control, they say <laughs> Laura Curran joining us live it's cut to the chase with Laura Curran on 77 WABC 
Hello, everyone. I'm Laura Kern. Welcome back to Cut to the Chase on Talk Radio 77 WABC. So I have with me in the studio Melissa DeRosa, who, uh, if you listen to ABC and Cats at Night, I think she is on uh, at least once a week. Doing, least once. <laughs> doing an amazing job. Uh, at, now I have on the line George Latimer, who is the Westchester County Executive. George, how are you? I'm good, Laura. Nice to talk to you. I'm Melissa. Yeah, it's nice to talk to you, too. Great to chat with you, County Executive. So, George. Well, it's a pleasure to hear you both. Yes. We were ta- I was talking to Melissa earlier about, you know, any PTSD from having gone through the budget process up in Albany, and you were both an assemblyman and a senator. So do you have heave a little bit of a sigh of relief that you're not up there burning the midnight oil, trying to, you know, do all the horse trading and sausage making that goes on with the budget? Well, you know, Lord, the truth be told, when I was in the assembly, I was a junior member of the assembly, even though I was over 50 years of age. And the guys that got in the room were Shelley Silver and a couple of his trusted allies, not every assemblyman. And then when I was in the Senate, I was in the minority. So uh, while we had interactions sort of secondhand, uh, I'd love to tell you, as they said in Hamilton, I was in the room when it happened, but I wasn't. But nonetheless, <laughs> I did have a chance to get a ringside seat on it. And it is quite a show. Although, isn't it better to be the boss? Then in the yeah. end, <laughs> absolutely. I'm happy to. I'm happy to be a CEO, to use your language, of a county of a million people. Yeah. And while we're smaller than Nassau, where you were uh, county executive, you know, Westchester is a significant uh, jurisdiction. We've got absolutely uh, a lot of the issues in microcosm that you have in the state of macrocosm, but it, it's a different. It's a different operation. Yeah, it's a, it's a different operation. And when you're a legislator, you can really propose anything. You can say anything. When you're the executive, you have to actually make it work, which is not, which is not always easy. Um, no, that's really the bottom line. It's not just what you believe. It's, it's what you can implement. Exactly. Exactly. And get it done. Uh, and pay for. So, George, okay. I wanted to talk to you. I was really struck, uh, by your very calm and diplomatic tone at a press conference. <laughs> Where, where, uh, Kathy Hochul's zoning proposals came up. Um, a lot of people, especially Republicans in local government, are having a lot of fun with this, lighting their hair on fire, hoisting signs that say local control, not Hochul control. Uh, but I did feel that she kind of walked into a bit of a buzzsaw with this proposal to get rid, uh, with this more of a carrot, excuse me, more of a stick, uh, threatening local municipalities to get rid of local control if they don't build enough housing, where you could potentially have 25,000 units uh, zoned around any Long Island Railroad station in Nassau County and a, a lot in Westchester as well, same thing. But um, I may be a little less diplomatic in how I put this. I just think it's politically horrible to threaten to take away local control. But the way you talked about it, you said something that I thought was very profound, and I think Melissa could relate to this. Uh, you said politics and policy go hand in hand, go hand in hand, which is a profound truth that gets lost in the conversation. And actually, good politics gets good policy done. Well, I think that's very much true. And, you know, when you're in a suburban setting, you know, you're not New York City with some of the, uh, you know, hyper uh, attention that goes with politics. You know, the mayors of New York City are rock stars. Uh, county executive, not too much. Nobody really uh, even knows what a county executive is. It's a, it's a very uh, strange you know, thing. That's, uh, I think of you, know, you I, as, a rock, I, as a rock star, George. <laughs> well, that's nice of you to say that. But, uh, but the bottom line is this. When, when we look at the housing, um, 
situation that, that's been proposed by the governor. To me, there's two elements to it. Number one is what are you trying to accomplish? What's the end uh, that you're trying to achieve? And then number two, what are the means that you're using to get to it? The, the end is, a, is an important end. We do need more housing starts in this state. Uh, we need them in each of the counties. Uh, Westchester County grew 6% in population from the 2010 to the 2020 census. And I think it's reflected in, uh, on our own in some of the housing starts that we've had uh, in uh, Westchester that exceed, you know, most of the other suburban counties. Uh, and so setting a goal, a 3% goal in the MTA area, uh, to me is fine. The problem is how you would implement it. And, and Melissa can write the book on this. The stick is an essential part of your toolkit, but so is the carrot. And, the, and knowing how much carrot and how much stick is the whole game. Now, when you talk about zoning in, in the suburban environment, you're going to the root, the, the third rail of the way people in the small towns and the villages that make up the suburbs, and even upstate, I would say, the way they view their communities. Uh, I've heard some people say, and I pushed back on this, zoning is a tool of racism. Back in the 1920s and 30s, there's no question, maybe the 1950s, uh, zoning was a, was a tool to keep people out. But that's not the way it is now. Westchester County has got 40, almost 50% of our population in more urban settings. The big cities of Westchester, Yonkers, New Rochelle, Mount Vernon, White Plains, and the smaller urban centers, Peekskill, Austin, Porchester, and so forth. So we're not one big, fat, Pecanico Hills estate that wants to keep out people. But you have to figure out what's the combination of incentives as well as uh, uh, sticks that can help get this done. And I would argue the biggest impediment that you have to housing in the suburbs is money, is that there's such a strong market demand for our land that in Westchester County, you get an open piece of land, you want to try to build, say, affordable housing on it, the market is ready to come along and build market rate housing on it, and the market is there to get the apartments. So you need to use both of those things. Now, the state has lots of different sticks and carrots uh, and, you know, I've, I've been on both ends of carrots and sticks as a county executive. And the punchline to me is when you threaten to override local zoning, then you create a political nightmare for what you're trying to accomplish. And you lose the good goal that you're trying to achieve because you made so many people upset that, oh, my God, the state's going to come in and tell us what to do about every little thing. And uh, we're going to override secret and all this stuff. And that becomes self-defeating. So do you think that, you know, this is this is an issue and this is both for for Melissa and George. Do you think this is an issue that she is so passionate about that she's willing to uh, sacrifice her other initiatives, things like menthol cigarettes or gas stoves or that sort of thing? What do you think, Melissa? Uh, just, you know, you know I, Melissa, yeah. I think, it, no, I think it goes overboard. I think she gets something on housing, but I think that where she ends up will look much more like what's in the one house bills that the legislature put in last week. I think that perhaps there will be incentives, there will be money, things like that. But I think that at the end of the day, there's too much opposition, you know, across the board on this issue. Andre Stewart Cousins, who like is a constituent of yours, county executive, I think actually feels passionately about this too. She understands the suburbs, I think, much more than Carl Heastie, who's from the city, and Kathy Hochul, who's from Buffalo. Um, and so, you know, I think that she feels strongly on this issue. And so, no, I, I ultimately don't think she ends up getting the stick that she proposed. And I think she expended a lot of political capital for at the end of the day, something she's not going to end up getting done. Then we have the whole thing of good cause eviction, which is, is I, I think it is in both the Senate and the Assembly bills. This basically would cap the amount that landlords can raise their rent 
and would mean would also mean that people who can no longer pay their rent, you know, if it's above that little percentage that there that it would that it could be raised, they could not be evicted. So it's basically rent stabilization or rent control for everybody. Um, might that be something you think she uh, would go for? I think she's going to I think she's going to give it in order to get something on criminal justice. I think that's going to end up being the trade that she gets in order to get something on bail. And this is something that the real estate community hates. It's something that's never been done before. It's something that's very important to the far less left, you know, tenant advocates in New York City. Um, But it's it's sort of the holy grail and no one knows what it's going to do, especially right now, while the real estate market is so unstable in New York City. And so, you know, it's it's a real gamble. But I think that she'll end up giving that in order to get something on bail. And again, I think the something is going to be a thing to watch because I don't think that what she gets is going to end up being really what she needs. But I think that at this point, she'll throw the baby out with bathwater. George, to your point. Oh, go ahead. There's so many other issues on the table. Uh, Some of them haven't really reached uh, much public attention. But for those of us who watch it, county governments right now are hurt by this budget because of the state's uh, governor's intention to retain money that would be reimbursed to us on uh, Medicaid. Big holes in our budget, Mm. potentially a $40 million hole in the Westchester County budget and bigger in Nassau and Suffolk. That becomes a a big issue for us, not on the table in the debate, uh, you know, on the press, but it's something that's important on the inside of government. So as somebody once told me when I first got to Albany, nothing gets done until everything gets done, meaning that every single issue is leveraged for every single other issue. And that's why it looks the way it does. We get those big uglies at the end of a legislative session that's got eight or ten different issues all packed into one bill, very disparate topics, but that is the end result uh, in a budget of uh, this, this horse trading that's ahead. You know, I love these conversations with George Latimer, Westchester County Executive, Melissa DeRosa, former, uh, I don't even feel like saying that anymore. She's a, she's a, a columnist in the Daily Beast. She's a radio person now. Uh, but these conversations are important, I think, for people to hear because it's easy to get caught up in the headlines. It's easy to get caught up in who, who's mad at who and who's saying what about who and all of the gossip. But at the end of the day, government has to run. The funds need to be there. The sewage needs to be taken care of. We need the cops. We need the land use. So all that, all that stuff taken care of. It's not as easy as it seems. So I want to thank these two public servants so much for joining me on Cut to the Chase. After the break, we're going to talk about a new vision for Penn Station. Do you commute? What is your vision for Penn Station? Profound truth that gets lost in the conversation. And actually, good politics gets good policy done. Well, I think that's very much true. And, you know, when you're in a suburban setting, you know, you're not New York City with some of the, uh, you know, hyper uh, attention that goes with politics. You know, the mayors of New York City are rock stars. Uh, county executive, not too much. Nobody really uh, even knows what a county executive is. It's a it's a very uh, strange you know, thing. That's, uh, <laughs> I think of you, know, you I, as, a, I, as a rock star, George. <laughs> well, that's nice of you to say that. But uh, but the bottom line is this: when when we look at the housing um, situation that that's been proposed by the governor, to me, there's two elements to it. Number one is what are you trying to accomplish? What's the end uh, that you're trying to achieve? And then number two, what are the means that you're using to get to it? The the end is, a, is an important end. We do need more housing starts in this state. Uh, we need them in each of the counties. Uh, Westchester County grew 6% in population from the 2010 to the 2020 census. And I think it's reflected in uh, on our own in some of the housing starts that we've had uh, in uh, Westchester that exceed you know most of the other suburban counties. 
Uh, and so setting a goal, a 3% goal in the MTA area, uh, to me is fine. The problem is how you would implement it. And, and Melissa can write the book on this. The stick is an essential part of your toolkit, but so is the carrot. And, the, and knowing how much carrot and how much stick is the whole game. Now, when you talk about zoning in, in the suburban environment, you're going to the root, the, the third rail of the way people in the small towns and the villages that make up the suburbs, and even upstate, I would say, the way they view their communities. Uh, I've heard some people say, and I push back on this, zoning is a tool of racism. Back in the 1920s and 30s, there's no question, maybe the 1950s, uh, zoning was a, was a tool to keep people out. But that's not the way it is now. Westchester County has got 40, almost 50% of our population in more urban settings. The big cities of Westchester, Yonkers, New Rochelle, Mount Vernon, White Plains, and the smaller urban centers, Peekskill, Austin, Portchester, and so forth. So we're not one big, fat, Pecanico Hills estate that wants to keep out people. But you have to figure out what's the combination of incentives as well as uh, uh, sticks that can help get this done. And I would argue the biggest impediment that you have to housing in the suburbs is money, is that there's such a strong market demand for our land that in Westchester County, you get an open piece of land, you want to try to build, say, affordable housing on it, the market is ready to come along and build market rate housing on it, and the market is there to get the apartments. So you need to use both of those things. Now, the state has lots of different sticks and carrots, uh, and, you know, I've, I've been on both ends of carrots and sticks as a county executive. And the punchline to me is when you threaten to override local zoning, then you create a political nightmare for what you're trying to accomplish. And you lose the good goal that you're trying to achieve because you made so many people upset that, oh, my God, the state's going to come in and tell us what to do about every little thing. And uh, we're going to override secret and all this stuff. And that becomes self-defeating. So do you think that, you know, this is this is an issue and this is both for for Melissa and George. Do you think this is an issue that she is so passionate about that she's willing to uh, sacrifice her other initiatives, things like menthol cigarettes or gas stoves or that sort of thing? What do you think, Melissa? Uh, just, you know, yeah, I, Melissa, yep. I think, it, no, I think it goes overboard. I think she gets something on housing, but I think that where she ends up will look much more like what's in the one house bills that the legislature put in last week. I think that perhaps there will be incentives, there will be money, things like that. But I think that at the end of the day, there's too much opposition, you know, across the board on this issue. Andre Stewart Cousins, who like is a constituent of yours, county executive, I think actually feels passionately about this too. She understands the suburbs, I think, much more than Carl Heasty, who's from the city, and Kathy Hochul, who's from Buffalo. Um, and so, you know, I think that she feels strongly on this issue. And so, no, I, I ultimately don't think she ends up getting the stick that she proposed. And I think she expended a lot of political capital for at the end of the day, something she's not going to end up getting done. Then we have the whole thing of good cause eviction, which is, is I, I think it is in both the Senate and the Assembly bills. This basically would cap the amount that landlords can raise their rent and would mean would also mean that people who can no longer pay their rent, you know, if it's above that little percentage that, that it would that it could be raised, they could not be evicted. So it's basically rent stabilization or rent control for everybody. Um, might that be something you think she uh, would go for? 
I think she's going to I think she's going to give it in order to get something on criminal justice. I think that's going to end up being the trade that she gets in order to get something on bail. And this is something that the real estate community hates. It's something that's never been done before. It's something that's very important to the far less left, you know, tenant advocates in New York City. Um, but it's it's sort of the holy grail and no one knows what it's going to do, especially right now while the real estate market is so unstable in New York City. And so, you know, it's it's a real gamble. But I think that she'll end up giving that in order to get something on bail. And again, I think the something is going to be a thing to watch because I don't think that what she gets is going to end up being really what she needs. But I think that at this point, she'll throw the baby out with the bathwater. George, to your point. You know, there's, there's so oh, many, go ahead. Yeah, there's so many other issues on the table. Uh, some of them haven't really reached uh, much public attention. But for those of us who watch it, county governments right now are hurt by this budget because of the state's uh, governor's intention to retain money that would be reimbursed to us on uh, Medicaid. Big holes in our budget, Mm. potentially a $40 million hole in the Westchester County budget and bigger in Nassau and Suffolk. That becomes a a big issue for us, not on the table in the debate, uh, you know, on the press, but it's something that's important on the inside of government. So as somebody once told me when I first got to Albany, nothing gets done until everything gets done, meaning that every single issue is leveraged for every single other issue. And that's why it looks the way it does. We get those big uglies at the end of a legislative session that's got eight or ten different issues all packed into one bill, very disparate topics. But that is the end result uh, in a budget of uh, this, this horse trading that's ahead. Yep. You know, I love these conversations with George Latimer, Westchester County Executive, Melissa DeRosa, former, uh, I don't even feel like saying that anymore. She's a, she's a, a columnist in the Daily Beast. She's a radio person now. Uh, but these conversations are important, I think, for people to hear because it's easy to get caught up in the headlines. It's easy to get caught up in who, who's mad at who and who's saying what about who and all of the gossip. But at the end of the day, government has to run. The funds need to be there. The sewage needs to be taken care of. We need the cops. We need the land use. So all that, all that stuff taken care of. It's not as easy as it seems. So I want to thank these two public servants so much for joining me on Cut to the Chase. After the break, we're going to talk about a new vision for Penn Station. Do you commute? What is your vision for Penn Station? Cut to the Chase. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Cut to the chase with Laura Curran on 77 WABC. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Cut to the Chase. I am Laura Curran. Melissa DeRosa is going to stick around for a few more minutes. And on the line, we have Alex Washburn, who is a global expert on urban planning, on urban design. And he's got a whole new vision for Penn Station and the area around. Alex, welcome to Cut to the Chase. While we get Alex on the line, you might want to go to a website. It's RethinkPennStationNYC.org, and it gives you this whole classical vision, kind of the, it has the how Penn Station used to be with the beautiful classical architecture, with the sun streaming in, and it, you know, sort of elevates your soul. Um, I am a regular commuter to Penn Station. I also love Grand Central Madison. I'm not hating on it like a lot of other people are. Uh, and I'm, I, the, the new Penn Station, it's so much better than it was having to commute back in the day. Melissa, I know you were very involved with this, with those horrible low ceilings. It was just crowded and depressing. Everyone's in a bad mood. Um, and so this new thing ain't so bad. But, uh, Mr. Washburn, 
the new Penn Station that you are envisioning would require the removal of Madison Square Garden. And I think that might be controversial for people like Ryan, who's working the boards over here. Uh, Ryan, what do you think about that? Well, here's the thing. First off, I want to state I saw the plans for the new Penn Station. So you went on the website and you checked it out. I did, yes. Okay. I must say it's it looks stunning. It looks amazing. It does. And the music gave me goosebumps. I almost cried. Oh, it's so yes. gorgeous. So beautiful. Yeah. But the big question is, where are you going to move Madison Square Garden? Because honestly, I think it would be a great idea, this new Penn Station. Okay. But where would you move the garden? That's Alex, the question. Alex, that's the big question. Where would you move the garden? Hey, the... um. What I would have to say is not where I'm going to move the gardens. Where's the garden going to move the garden? It's <laughs> not your problem. You know? Right. Well, no, I mean, yeah, I want to help. I want to help pave the way. But ultimately, this is the garden has to say where it went. And what they just said a couple of weeks ago at a community hearing is that they'd be happy to move across the street, move across 7th Avenue. So there are other sites in the city that could work. But, hey, if that works for them, let's see if we can do it. So, Vornado recently announced, this was last month, uh, pretty big news. They're pushing pause on their big Penn District revisioning. Uh, This is, you know, new beautiful community all around Penn Station with workplaces and, you know, all kinds of amenities and all that sort of thing. Uh, A lot of money, billions and billions of dollar investment in this. But it's on pause because we don't know what buildings, what work is going to look like. You know, we're still getting back from COVID and there's there's 40 percent emptiness in uh, empty rates in these office buildings. Does this Vornado pause give you some hope for your project that perhaps this is a good time to get in and do something different than what had been planned? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is it's funny somehow the universe gets things right. Yes, we need to hit pause on building more office buildings. He's got a ton of it. But we don't want to hit pause on building a fantastic new arena. So, hey, maybe maybe the universe says it's not time for more office, but it is time to build the next generation of MSG, an arena that will be so cool, so amazing that the Knicks will win a championship. <laughs> yeah, as long as it's not the Rangers, I'd be fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so this is actually a great time uh, because the office market is tanking to think about something different and what could be kind of more different, more interesting than moving the garden over into the space where the Vornado offices were going to go mm-hmm. and creating something that's maybe even more than an arena. It's got you know, incredible interactive things and 3D things and new esports. Modernized. Kind of thinking a little bit modernized, bigger, better, kind of, you know what? I mean, it's, it's just time that New York didn't have just the world's most famous arena, but the world's best arena. So the, this is Melissa Droza. It's nice to chat with you. So, so I think the big question for New Yorkers, for taxpayers, and for people in government is where does the money come from? Because this would cost, how much money would it cost to buy out Dolan and Madison Square Garden and how much would it cost for them to move? Just as a baseline proposition. We're talking billions here. This is not cheap. But it's a private deal because it makes an incredible amount of money. So, you know, I know we give subsidies and tax subsidies to, you know, to the garden. and to Well, that's also something arenas. that's that's controversial right now. Uh, I believe it's a $43 million a year tax break, while yeah. Jim Dolan has facial recognition not allowing certain people from the public 
and one could say it's using public funds so everyone should be welcome to use it, uh, getting them kicked out. Yeah, and, you know, why should why should that be given a tax break? Why should, frankly, you know, any, any of these sports arenas, well, some of them kind of need the tax break because maybe they're out in Buffalo, maybe the fan base isn't that big. But, you know, you have an arena in the middle of Manhattan, the center of the world, that sells out every night. You know, it's it's not a charity case. But what what we're kind of missing here is that it's not just arena. If you build it along with a hotel, like, you know, that incredible hotel in Singapore, um, you know, that Marina Bay Sands kind of got that infinite edge pool looking mm. across the city. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think of this as a complex and you've got retail and you've got other money-making things, the whole package costs a lot, but it makes you an incredible return. And that attracts international capital, and that gets things done. You know, as someone who used to work at the highest levels of state government in this state and who saw had a front row seat to redoing LaGuardia and JFK and building Moynihan and the Mario Cuomo Bridge, all projects that had been talked about for 50, 60, 70 years that stalled out, I saw what it took to get those projects done, and I saw what it took to get the Second Avenue subway opened. And it really takes someone with drive, with passion, who's innovative, who's willing to put everyone at a table, to knock some heads, to make people to make some decisions they don't necessarily want to make, to drag the community along with them. And my problem is with this vision of yours, which I think is beautiful and I think would make New York an incredible place to be, even more so than it already is, is I just don't see it in the current government makeup that we have. I mean, my bigger fear is they walked away from the other Penn Station redesign plan and now just nothing is going to happen. And I'm I'm concerned this is going to end up becoming another Tappan Zee Bridge, another Second Avenue subway where people throw out plans and talk and talk and talk and just nothing gets done. So, Alex, I expect you hear this a lot because it's a it's a very bold plan and a difficult thing to get done. What, how do you respond to that? Because I'm sure you hear this all the time. Hey, I lived it. Listen, remember, I'm the guy who who got the Moynihan train hall started for Senator Moynihan. I used to work for him. I, I would, and remind the listeners how many years ago was that? <laughs> that was that was I was 12 years old when he made me president of that thing. Yeah. No, that was a while ago. Um, but listen, but no, I remember he would drag me to the White House and we would we would just buttonhole Clinton and get him to commit to doing this. And Moynihan pushed and pushed and pushed. And yeah, in a normal setting nothing gets done without politics finance and design and you need that one politician who's willing to go the extra mile to achieve a vision so you know there so politicians love to lead a parade my goal is i want to show people the parade and then i think a politician will get in front of it but what we can draw what we can show the financials for you know, when we start doing, you know, showing you the, how these finances work, there's a lot of money to be made, and there's a lot of money that's going to get left on the table if we don't do this. So, so I have faith in capitalism <laughs> and greed, and <laughs> no one's going to want to leave this much money on the table and not build an incredible new arena, which will then not build an incredible new station, which will then not build an incredible new neighborhood. We're talking about mega billions here. So and I have two questions. One is work is being done inside Penn. Um, some might say it's just lipstick on a pig. It's not that different. But 
that work would all have to be undone. So you think about all of the expense, all of the labor, et cetera, et cetera. No, 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 no. Listen, listen, I've been working on this project for 30 years. So I know these, I work, these are the same plans we came up with in 1996. Okay. It's putting in escalators, elevators, increasing the touch points to every platform and making what's called level A, which is kind of the bottom level of Penn Station, into kind of a, a unified open space where you can get from any one part to any other part. Right now, there are like locker rooms and weird things and funny places. you got to clear that all out. That's the same in our plan as in the governor's plan as in any plan. You know, it's that A level is the same. So we're just talking about what happens above that. Uh, you're listening to Cut to the Chase. I'm Laura Curran. In the studio is Melissa DeRosa. We have Alex Washburn on the line talking about a new vision for Grand Central. So, Alex, we've got a couple of minutes left. What about community buy-in? Are you guys, is your coalition engaging with the community boards, with local elected officials, and what are they telling you? Yeah, yeah, we are. We are, and it's actually really hopeful because there's a lot of political leadership, you, man, you mentioned, that's bubbling up at that level. Um, Leila Law Gisico who's the land use chair of um, CB, uh, CB5, CB4. Mm-hmm. Um, she's amazing. She's, she's coming up with um, a plan. And in our, what we are, we're just the center of that plan, the, you know, the, the transportation center. She's coming up with a plan for the whole neighborhood with her community. And there's a process for that called 197A. It's kind of technical, but it allows a community board to give government a plan. And that's really hopeful. And the, you know, Brad Hoyleman, Tony Simone, all these people, these are doing a great Eric Botcher, the local city councilman. Amazing job that he's doing. So, you know, we're seeing maybe we haven't gotten to that top down politician yet, you know, that president or senior senator or governor. But we have seen the bottom up politics starting to form. And that's really encouraging because it tells you the idea is a good one and the opportunity is there. It, with the last minute we have remaining, do you have any thoughts about incorporating a casino into your development in one way or another? Uh, I think there are five possible casino bids happening just in Midtown alone. In fact, one for the um, Hotel Pennsylvania, which is very slowly but surely getting demolished right across the street from Penn Station. Is that something that you guys have engaged with at all, the casino aspect? Not a, the, not on our level. I know, I mean, we're talking about the same site as the Hotel Pennsylvania, right? So that's... Yes, you know, it's the same site. Yeah. Exactly. But so the casino is not in our in our ken. Um, but, you know, casinos are basically basements. Um, so yeah. from, from an architect's Sad, smoke-filled. View, I guess they can't be smoke-filled anymore. Right, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, from the, the planning point of view, where, you know, that's somebody else's decision, but it, it can physically work. So if you want to know what we're talking about, you want the visual, please go to RethinkPennStationNYC.org. You can see what we're talking about. And if you live in the area, let and, Alex know how you feel. Alex Washburn, thank you so much. Org. Oh, what did okay, I say? Thank you. What? Oh, GrandPen.org. Gra- sorry. GrandPen. GrandPen.org. GrandPen.org. That's a lot easier. GrandPen.org. <laughs> Alex, thank you so much, and good luck. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Thank you. Bye-bye. Listeners, I want to hear from you. Give us a call at 800-848-9222 on anything we've been talking about. You want to talk about Trump. You want to talk about commuting. You want to talk about menthol cigarettes. You want to talk about charter schools. Uh, give me a call. 800-848-WABC. Melissa DeRosa. I know you got to go, but thanks for uh, sitting with me. This was fun. Thanks so much for having me, Laura.
Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran on 77 WABC. Hi, everyone. It's Laura Curran. Thanks for listening to Cut to the Chase here on Sunday afternoon. Coming up at 5, we have Positively Ernie and Patricia with some good news about how to keep your memory and stay young and beautiful. (laughs) So I'll be listening to that. Ryan, before I get to the calls, I just want to talk to you. So last week we talked about TikTok and, and, and the seductive app where you just get sucked in. You go in for like a second and two hours later you're still there. Uh, starving and you have to pee and you're not even thinking about any of that. So I went on because I heard AOC did her very first TikTok, which was actually a surprise to me. So I went on. Half hour later, I remembered why I went and went to go look at her video. So that just, again, so I, you know what I did? What did you do? Yes. Uh, you kept scrolling through TikTok? I deleted the app. Oh, okay. I did. I did. Although I have to say, I don't agree with AOC a lot, uh, to say the least, but I did a good point. It's not just TikTok that's harvesting your data. Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, all of them are harvesting your data, and you don't know what the heck they're doing with it. Absolutely not. All right. I want to talk to Joe about Hotel Pennsylvania. Joe, what's on your mind? Yes, my dear. Thank you for taking my call. I tried before, but you're always, you know, you're a very popular gal. Oh, I'm so So popular. I wouldn't say it wasn't true. Anyway, I just wanted to say that the Hotel Pennsylvania, I mean, location, 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 and yet it's been close to 13 months. Was it because um, your last guest, um, Melissa's boss as governor, was putting all the criminals in the hotels? Who wants to spend four hundred dollars? You know, I don't know, but I know that it's been it's been closed for a long time, and they're dismantling it. And and someone wants to actually put a casino there, so we'll see if that happens. Joe, thanks for your call. I want to talk to Ed from Long Island. He has a a very good question. I don't know if I have the answer. Ed, what's up? I have a I have a question and a comment. Which do you want first? Um, comment short and then question short in that order. Okay, comment about cigarettes, which the tobacco companies fertilize using this potassium and in potassium i'm in nuclear medicine oh there's a radioactive part to it really so within the cigarette if you smoke two packs a day it's like getting a chest x-ray oh my polonium it it, uh burnt it becomes polonium and i read this in a medical uh journal uh and here's the thing about cigarettes i mean what, what what makes the menthol? They don't put anything natural in cigarettes, do they? There's no eucalyptus oil in a cigarette. Uh, it's got to be a chemical. I mean, that's a good question. I don't know, but I'm more concerned about about this radioactive element. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's called polonium after the uh, you know potassium. What's in the cigarette is burnt. It's so I mean, Ed, you're not going to hear this ever again. You know, I read it in a in a medical journal. Do you think that they should be banned? I mean, that's what the governor wants to do. Here in New York, I, 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 I suppose they're worse than other things for you. You know, if you put Vicks vapor rub on a cigarette, you smoke it. It's not going to be good for you. Well, <laughs> you've given me something to try, <laughs> Ed. Where on Long Island are you? Where on Long Island are you, by the way? Uh, in North Babylon. Very nice. All right. Well, thanks for calling, Ed. Please call back. 
All right. I want to talk to Arlene, who has a question also from Long Island. Arlene, but uh, Melissa's not here, so I'll see if I can answer it. Go ahead. What do you got? Okay. Yeah. Okay, great. A quick comment, comment and a quick question. So I can see why um, you invited Melissa because she has a lot of experience, and I think it's terrific in any field when women support women. But here's my question actually for you, Laura. Yeah. You had asked her when talking about budget, you said to her, do you have PTSD? And in, in her reflecting back on when she worked on the budget. Yeah. But here's what I find so interesting about, and she's, this is not the first time that you've had her as a guest, for a person in politics who has admitted to concealing the number of deaths when she worked for the Cuomo administration in the nursing home when they were writing the book, why would you highlight her as a political strategist on your show? Just not getting it. Well, I appreciate that, Arlene. Um, I don't have time to get into all of that now, and she's not here to defend herself. So I'm. I your point is taken, and I will just leave leave it there for now. Okay. Thank you, Arlene. Uh, Judith, we have one minute. You got. You want to talk about the Donald Trump picture? You got. You got uh, forty five seconds. All right. Let's try. Uh, Dick Mars is uh, early today has a show on the same station that you're on said that the photograph was actually doctored up. It was not real. That ah. the post took the picture of Trump at, holding a bat, and then they connected it with, uh, what's his name, Album Bragg. So it was a doctored up picture, and the reason they didn't go uh, publicize it more is because that's the only paper that printed it. No other paper prints, no one else, whatever. I feel it's a mistake. I feel that it should be spoken about. If they doctored this up, it should be spoken about because I heard it on your show. Everyone's talking about it, that he did this, and he did not do that. Absolutely not. And we're talking about violence because the truth is you've got Antifa people coming out as well. Every time you have peaceful people coming in, you've got Antifa people coming in. They're going to make a whole right, and then they'll blame it on the Trumpers. Judith, I want to thank you for clearing that up because the perception was that it was his tweet. Uh, You're saying it's not. And if people want to find out for themselves, go and look at his Truth Social post and see see what see what he actually did. Judith, thank you for clearing that up for us, and thanks for calling Cut to the Chase. Listeners, have a fabulous Sunday. Stay tuned for Positively Ernie and Patricia with some news on how to stay young and beautiful. Cut to the Chase.